This episode is sponsored by Valen Eyewear. And so I think that's my secret is, is I am just genuinely looking forward to the ups and the downs, the lights and the darks, the, the, um, the yin and the yang of whatever experience is right, is right in front of me. And almost that childlike spirit of just being stoked for about what's about to happen. Like, let's go play. This episode's guest is Jason Hardrath. And what a pleasure it is to have Jason on the show. He has done something mega. A, a fastest known time is, by definition, the fastest known time of a certain route in the uh, anywhere. Usually you find them in the mountains, but any trails, mountains, anything, it's the fastest, fastest known time that it's been done. Jason has a hundred of them. A hundred fastest known times. And for his hundredth fastest known time, he climbed 100 of the tallest Washington mountain peaks uh, in 50 days. And we jump into that, and that's kind of what the episode became. I left a lot of pre-written questions on the table because the conversation just naturally started going down the route of this huge effort made for this 100th fastest known time. And what a pleasure it was talking about it. This episode is going to get you inspired and fired up. And if it doesn't, I don't know what else to say. I don't know what will. Jason is this huge just definition of positivity and energy. Uh, and yeah, you just feed off it in the episode. Uh, early on in his life, he, he had a big crash, which he was lucky to walk away from. And, uh, you know, by metaphor only. Um and yeah, really lucky to get away from it. And, it. and it just instilled this drive for life inside him. So, And you can hear that in every single sentence he gives. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. But before we get into that, this episode is, as I mentioned, sponsored by Valen Eyewear. So winter is coming up and I cannot wait to get out into some bluebird snowy days in the highlands, in the lakes, in Snowdonia, even in Brecon. I'm even heading, hitting up Norway as well with my daughter. Cannot wait to get out there. And Valen Eyewear is what I'm going to be bringing. They've sent me out the Valen Mountain sunglasses, which I've been wearing all summer, and I just love them. They just, they fit perfectly. They've got these flexible, uh, what would you call them? I wear glasses and I can't remember the name of them. The stems that go across your ears, they're flexible at the back so you can get the perfect tight fit on your own head. They've got the blinders, they are just beautifully stylish and they do the job to just more than the standard that you'd hope it to be. They're developed by these um, these uh, Swedish brothers that are coming out of the Alps so they know exactly what they're looking for in eyewear. So I really, really recommend that you get out there and have a look at them. They are super sustainable. For every single sale they make, they collect one kilogram of plastic out in the world. So be sure to go and check out their link down on the website, have a browse and snag yourself some beautiful, beautiful eyewear for the outdoors. Go and have a gander while listening to this and let me know what you think too. But with no further ado, here is Jason Hardrath. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Chris, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, body's finally starting to bounce back after uh, the crazy the crazy Bulgers effort. 
Yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to jumping into that. Actually, we were just talking before this. Like, it's been about twice as long recovery from that. Uh, yeah, you know, usually after a hundred mile effort, you would expect like, uh, you know, like a three or four week window where you just kind of feel off. Stuff's just not quite right. Um, this was eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Mad, but I mean, we'll get into it in a, in a bit. But I mean, 100 peaks in 50 days. Uh, must really throw your body off and like we said it's just leave you with just a, a mental amount of stories so um so uh I, I think we were talking before this that they're usually usually trying to keep them to half an hour these episodes uh, i i think we'll struggle to keep it under an hour <laughs> so we'll <laughs> we'll see what the final edit time is <laughs> um but yeah i'm really looking forward to it i mean um first of all thank you for suggesting tyler andrews and sunny strower who have been on the podcast now um so for anyone who hasn't listened to them go back and listen but, they um, are two awesome human beings. Amazing yeah, stories. Great, like just ridiculous accomplishments. Yeah, I know. So, so yeah, so thank you for just suggesting them. But w- one of the first things I really wanted to get into was um, there was a particularly um, kind of negative event that happened in your life, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into, um, but you'll explain to us. Um, and, and what I liked hearing was that it just, it reinforced, it didn't start, it reinforced your ideas that life is finite. So, you know, some, some people run for landscapes, some people run for adventure or nature. So what is it about fastest known times that make you pursue them? I've, for as long as I've known myself, um, I've been drawn to physical challenge, to pushing myself and, an expression of that that came out was getting into this sense of sort of uh, racing the clock on the one hand and mastering skills on the other hand. This this sense of like pursuing something against a clock and the sense of like, how well can I do this thing? How how close to doing it perfectly can I do it? Um, Back in earlier iterations of myself where I was a more religious thinking person, I, 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 even as a teenager, I would voice that when I die and I, you know, face God, I want to, I want to ask him, how close did I get? Meaning how close did I get to like fully actualizing the, the maximum I could have done? Um, and I think that that sort of underlying drive to just see what's possible, what I can accomplish before I die, um, is kind of an underlying like motivation within how I pursue these fastest known times and how I pursue my, my outdoors adventures in general is like, there's this clock ticking and yeah, no, the, the big car accident I got in just drove that home all the more that it's like at any moment, like snap of the fingers, anything you think you own, anything you think you are is gone. So it's making the most of the moments you still have, um, just became, it just reinforced that it's like, man, I'm not going to let any years or moments or weeks of my life get lost to things I don't care about because, you know, you assume you're going to live another 10 years. You assume you're going to live another 20 years, but then it's like, there's no promises. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, I think, I think you'd really get on with um, another podcast host called Jay Worthy. His is called 28 Summers. And it is, it's basically the same thinking you've got. Um, the story behind that is, um, it, it is essentially that um, he was listening to a podcast and the guy said, I'm, I'm 50 now. The average male life expectancy in the US is 78. So that means I have 28 uh, years left, but I don't have 28 years left. I have 28 summers left to use up. 
um, and how many of them are still going to be with my kids? You know, what am I going to do with that? So I don't have this many years left. I have these many summers left. What am I going to do? You know, like, well, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to live each day fantastically? Absolutely. I mean, it's the, it's the old, you know, stoic philosophy, you know, memento mori, right? Remember you will die. And that's, you know, they're in, in how they saw the world, like understanding that your death is imminent, like it's guaranteed is the only way you're going to find a path to make the moments you're still alive worth living. Um, And it's like, it's almost sort of this sense of, I feel like our culture got really scared of talking about death or thinking about death for a while. And now it's sort of coming back to this, like, no, if we're not going to get sucked into things that eat our time and don't end up having a return on the investment, like the only way to do that is to make sure we measure how much time we have left. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. And actually, I was, I was going to talk in that point as well, because I'm not sure what it's like in the US, but in the UK, uh, for sure, it, it definitely feels like it's quite a morbid topic, death. But if I was, I've not done any research into this. So this is not like empirical knowledge. This is just my perspective. But if you're looking at it, typically the older generations feel a bit morbid about death. And it's, there's, it's the younger generations coming through that, you know, you tell them one day you're going to die and they get fired up by that. They don't get depressed. They get that fired up by it and think, right, what am I going to do then? Yeah, no, exactly. Spot on. Yeah. I, I sense a very similar vibe here in the U.S., so, I mean, you've gone over so many of your fastest known times um, in other podcasts. So I'm sure we're going to bre- touch on some of those stories uh, as this goes on. But just to jump straight to the big one, the, the, you are, you, you, I'm sure you explain in your own words, you wanted to set out and achieve 100 fastest known times. And for your 100th fastest known time, you climbed 100 peaks known as the Washington Bulges, which is the highest, uh, highest hundred peaks in Washington, right? You nailed it spot on. Yeah, no, a hundred for the hundredth FKT. And it's 50 days, 23 hours, 43 minutes, zero seconds. So correct. my main question really is how did this all come together for you? Oh, it was, it was, um, well, I mean, it was going back to like 20, 2018 is where I first caught wind, I think of the Bulgers list even existing, this list of the 100 tallest peaks in Washington. Um, and someone mentioned it on this thread where people were debating what is the classic you know, FKT route of the state of Washington. Um, and they were, you know, there were these different things tossed around and someone threw that one out there. And then there was this side debate that took off like, oh, the current record of 410 days is gonna stand for a long time. And I remember looking at it and I'm like, 410 days based on my experience as an athlete that sees what other athletes do out in the mountains and my own experience with things I've done. It's like, no, that record could get beaten. Um, like that person, that person doesn't understand what, what, what's possible for some human beings. And then I just, it like kind of got pinned in my mind, but like way in the back, not with the thought I was going to be the one to do it. Just like, oh no, someone will beat that. Um, and, you know, I marched along, marched along doing FKT after FKT. And, you know, as I got close to number 100, um, people started to ask, like, what are you going to do for your 100th FKT? Like, what's going to, what, what, what's the big one? And I'm like, huh, started like thinking about it. Like, maybe I should do something big. Cause I just do the, I do the stuff I do because I love it because, you know, like I took up, I'd never even done canyoneering uh, until I started contemplating how various slot canyon loops could be excellent 
fastest known times, like just this sort of like nature's obstacle course as you face the obstacles in these narrow canyons. Um, and you know, that I had to develop a whole new skill set and a whole new understanding, um, in order to, to do those things. And that was what I was in love with was this, these memories and these skills that I was sort of accumulating at an accelerated rate because I was, you know, accumulating these hundred different distinct memories of chasing these, these routes. Um, and so to me, it was just like, I was just kind of living in it, just like just being fully enveloped in whatever the next challenge, the next FKT was. And, but then people kind of pulled me out of it with that question. Well, what are you going to do for the hundredth? And I was like, oh, maybe I should put a little more thought into my hundredth. And somehow I forget exactly how, but this thing got pulled back up into the forefront um, of my mind. And it like almost slapped me across the face. It was like a hundred peaks for the hundredth FKT fifth class terrain route navigation. Um, like no one's ever done it in this style where they just did first peak to last peak without ever going home. Um, it was like, this would be a contribution to the community in, in Washington, the Washington mountaineering community, um, to like show them what's possible, not really show them, but to demonstrate what's possible on these peaks and to like redefine people's like thoughts on what can be done here. Um, it's like, it felt really big and really significant all of a sudden and almost silly poetic, right? A hundred peaks for the hundredth fastest known time record. Um, so it's like, suddenly I was like, oh, dang, I have to do this. This is like the perfect cumulative test of moving in fifth class terrain of route finding of logistics of like everything I had done, but with the volume turned up to 11 and just day after day, um, nonstop. And so I committed to like, at least trying to put it together. And I remember like the initial conversations with some of these people, I even talked with the, the guy that had the 410 day record. Um, he was one of the people that helped me sort of figure out what was possible. Um, and like, at first it was like this kind of come in like, okay, guys, I don't even know if this is possible, but I want to try to do this in one season. Um, and you know, of course there was a ton of hesitation at first. Um, but bit by bit, as we like piece together big linkups that different people had done in history, uh, in the history of climbing in Washington and like found these different things to piece out, it's like, yeah, this could go. It's, you know, a fire could shut you down at any moment or a route, a glacier could melt out. So it's impassable, but it's at least possible. Um, and yeah, so over the course of like six months, plan this thing out and then go for it. Um, starting on June 13th and yeah, August, the wee, wee, wee hours, wee morning hours of, uh, August 3rd is when I came sprinting back down to the trailhead of, uh, Mount St. Helens to keep it from reading 51 days and keep it 50 days, 23 hours, 43 minutes. Yeah. 17 uh, minutes spare. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh man. Oh, that's, that's, that's just mad. I, I, when you're doing, when you're measuring it, like, do you measure it from, um, so you just said that you were running to the bottom of the trailhead. So, so I presume how it ends is some, some, some arbitrary marker of a, of a start of a trailhead. But so does that mean when you start it is at the start of a trailhead for the first peak or, or does it start when you hit the summit? Correct. So the, the time was running from the moment I took my first step away from the first trailhead. And the time stopped when I took my last step back into the final trailhead. Uh, I mean, you, you've said on another podcast that your body uh, is, is really, really resilient. <laughs> so 
Uh, and I think doing something like this just proves it and it makes sense. But, um, but you know, we just talked about having an eight-week recovery. But as far as the actual 100 Peaks itself, did you run into any issues, you know, physically or, or even mentally at all during the 50 days? Or, or were you just living the dream? Uh, both. Uh, both. I mean, you don't, you don't embrace projects like this and a strong desire for projects like, like this unless and this kind of gets back into a little of philosophy we touched on at the beginning right that this idea that to be experiencing any human experience to a high degree is better than to be bored to be experiencing nothing and so like my picture of the world is that even if i'm insanely fatigued or in an insane amount of pain um i'm having a better more novel more rich human experience than if I was sitting and watching Netflix kind of half bored going, huh, I guess I'll watch this. Um, it's like, you, you have to have some kind of an understanding that, that to live in any, any way richly is better than, than just sort of phoning into the end of life. And so yes to both. I mean, it was this amazing, glorious experience where I got to make fifth class rock climbing moves with thousands of feet of air below me up some of the most classic lines in the state of Washington. Um, and then also there was deep suffering. There was sleep deprivation. There was, you know, moving nonstop in brutal bushwhacking terrain, off trail, boulder hopping, rock climbing, glacier travel, cold, wet feet in the snow, for 22 hours straight um, and running out of food for the last few hours and out of water for the last few hours. Um, and just having that be a part of the richness of the whole experience. Um, and to be able to embrace that in the moment, like, yeah, this is, this is really rough, but also, damn, this is exactly what I signed up for. And yeah, no, I mean, there's there, I can think of this huge day that we pushed um, three peaks called Martin, bonanza and dark and there's this really classic um ridge traverse that you're on like super exposed terrain with just thousands of feet of air on either side of this razor ridge as you're traversing this ridge line between bonanza peak and dark peak and we realized like all the reports we'd read um my climbing partner and i'd read talked about it taking six hours and we, we look at the clock, our, our clock, and it's like, we don't have six hours of daylight left. We don't want to be moving on this type of terrain in the dark. Um, and so it's just kind of this, like, get into the flow state, pedal to the metal, you know, passing over the top of this ridgeline, you know, dipping your feet off one side, then pivoting over the top to the other side to find, like, the good holds in the solid rock. And just kind of getting into the state where we're just jamming across this ridgeline with massive exposure around, it's just kind of like kids on a playground, you know, just like in the zone um, where all that existed is just this next move in front of you. You could almost think of like a, a camera lens when, when the photographer blurs out the background and, and all you get is that, that object that's the object of the photography and everything around it is blurred out. It's like that kind of an experience, but inside yourself. Right. So it's like the fact that we were thousands thousands of feet off the ground, like it was still there. It was still present, but it, it was so seemingly like far away and blurred out, blurred out and just com- being completely tuned into the feeling of the rock 
and the, like the movement of our feet and the, you know, our breathing and just flowing through this thing. And we ended up climbing the whole thing in like three hours and 15 minutes, um, across to dark peak. So like almost half the, the previous known times on this section. Um, and then that same day, like after this just epic traverse and having just a really, really flow state of experience on it, this high end human experience, um, had to traverse a glacier and it was like the sun was setting. So it was getting cold. Um, and we're kind of exhausted and then do this insane bushwhack dropping over 4,000 feet in two miles. So like close to 5,000 feet in two miles, um, bushwhacking. So like no trail, no stable footing, steep terrain, uh, feet like sliding out from under you sometimes, um, in the dark. Um, and so fight our way down this thing for, for these two miles and finally meet up with the infamous PCT, the Pacific crest trail. Um, and we're just zonked. It's like middle of the night. Um, we're like, you know, that feeling when you shouldn't be driving any longer. Cause your head is starting to like droop and you like snap up to come awake. All too well. <laughs> it's, it's that, but you're, you're walking, you're, you're moving under your own power, but you are literally nodding off on your own feet. And finally, uh, we thought we had like seven miles of walking to get to camp still. Um, and so we just like, there's no way, there's no way, like we're falling asleep on our feet. So we just, you know, take a nosedive into the dirt, um, and, and just sleep it out right there on the, like one of us was literally like right on the trail face down in the dirt. You know, we just, we had like light bivy sacks with us. Um, but you know, no food left, no water left, just dirt nap our gear, just yard sailed around us. Um, to get our bivy sacks out. We're just a mess, you know? And the next morning, Ashley, um, you know, my, my girlfriend, we, we talked about how badass she is and amazing she is. She's hiked in the base camp we were supposed to get to. And she comes walking up the trail early in the morning and, you know, Hey guys. <laughs> and she's like, after she cooks us up some food, um, cause she'd hauled up, you know, some, some, some dehydrated food and a stove and, uh, that was, you know, the most amazing experience ever, right? When you're in that state of mind and being. And then she's like, you guys realize you're only a mile and a half from camp. <laughs> Could have slept on like air mattresses and, you know, had a, had a plush camp and That's instead just like face down in the dirt. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, another 30 minutes of walking in the condition we were in would have been. Uh, probably impossible. It's probably fair to say it would have been an eternity. I don't know if you've watched. Um, I don't know if you've watched Lord of the Rings, but the uh, the picture I had in my head was um, was was you looking up and uh, when um when Gandalf comes comes and gets the hobbits, he's got like the white light behind him. Yes, precisely <laughs> that. Ashley, going, come on, come on, my children. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, my love. <laughs> But the thing is that you raise a good point there, like because physiologically, even though you're in you're in a flow and and things are just just going so well, like your body is still exerting all that energy, and and to half the time, like obviously through efficiency and 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 good planning, that that's worked out. But they're still using your bodies, and and I presume would it be right to say that because you were so in the moment, you just didn't feel that exertion on your body until you'd got to the trail. Oh, absolutely! Like that sense of having to keep. You know, and, and anyone, I mean, you've, anyone who's had the experience of being exhausted or sleep deprived, or even just like, uh, someone who, you know, used to drink too much on the weekends, you know, partying. And then like, suddenly something happens where you have to try to focus and you like force yourself through mental will to like focus through, right? Like 
and it only works to a point, right? If you're exhausted too much, or if you've had too much to drink, like you can't get through it, but up to a point, like you can just force like this huge mental will over the top of that, that exhaustion or that loss of your, your faculties. Um, the same with being up in high elevations where you start to lose coordination and feel wobbly and, you know, um, you know, mental fuzziness is like, if you have like something highly motivating, you tend to be able to like focus and push through it. Like mentally, you just add more mental energy to the exertion to keep executing properly. Mm. And so it's totally a case of that, right? Like, you know, at first it was, we got to do this Ridge traverse. It was just like, like mentally just dialing in. And at that point it was like flow state where you don't even notice yourself exerting this massive amount of mental energy to stay focused. You just are doing it. But then I remember like coming down that brutal bushwhack. It was, oh man, we're moving so slow. We're dry. Like, cause the bushwhacking was horrible. So it's like, you're, you're, you're exerting an hour's worth of effort and you're covering less than a half a mile, you know, it's just, and it's downhill, it's downhill. And you're like, how can we be moving so slow? We're going to be doing this forever. Um, and just having to like mentally reframe that and be like, it's okay. This is part of the experience. Like, even if this takes four hours, like, cool. <laughs> that is what it is. It is what it is. I'm here. This is now, there's no reason to think about it any other way. Um, but at the same time, like it became a much more conscious mental effort to keep moving and not just sit down and take a break. Um, and so it became this very conscious, like focus, the will focus, the mind, make smart decisions. Don't get yourself hurt. And then getting down to that trail where, you know, it's sort of like when, you know, they say a lot of car accidents happen within, you know, five miles of home, mm. you like, you reach this place where it's like, oh, we've done it. And so arriving at the trail, it's like, oh, we've done it. And so all of that self-protective instinct, all of that energy, all of that focus kind of lets up a little bit, even if it doesn't let up all the way. And this is why they say like a, 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 the statistics show rather that most injuries on the mountain happen on the way down. Like you've made the summit. And so you let up a little of that, that mental focus and that mental energy. And suddenly you make a stupid mistake. And the same with the car accident near home. Like you stop paying as much attention as you should to the road and do something silly or don't notice something that someone else is doing silly. Um, and you know, so we got down to that trail and as soon as that mental energy let off a little, suddenly we couldn't stay awake on our own feet. It was, it was seriously, it was like a switch flipped. It was like, Oh, the trail. And then within 10 steps, it was like, we were both nodding off and wobbling on our poles. That's mad. Yeah. It, it's, it is, it's wild how quick. Uh, adrenaline just parted and, and just like was not helping you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you said yourself that you are, you love solo and supported fastest known times. When you were planning this out and going through all the limitations, did it ever did it ever cross your mind to maybe think solo unsupported, or did you just think no way, like not a chance? Well, there's, I mean, by the rules of unsupported, there's really no way um, to even do this one unsupported um, because the moment the moment yeah the moment you return to your car and have supplies there, it becomes self supported because you've you've had cashed supplies, and the moment you like use a gas station to get some more food or even fuel for your vehicle. It's like now you're self-supported. So I could have chosen to do this self-supported. Like I did all, I could have done all my own driving. I could have done all of the climbing solo. Um, and it would have fallen as a self-supported 
category, hmm. but like there were, there was a variety of thinking that went behind the choice that I made one, this was FKT number 100. And it felt like there was this long journey where people had joined me for different FKTs along the way. And other people had endured me being busy with doing FKTs like family and friends and whatnot. And by doing it supported, it allowed me to invite them to come be a part of a base camp or climb a peak with me, or just like catch me at a certain point. Um, I had one friend come all the way from Colorado and climbed six of the peaks with me. Um, and that wouldn't have been possible. I would have had to say no, like no one, no one can come be a part in any way of this hundredth FKT. Um, number two, there was a film crew coming along, um, because athletic brewing wanted to try to capture some of this in this hundred, uh, FKTs, uh, journey with a documentary. And so that'll be coming out probably here soon, actually. Uh, it's called Journey to 100. Um, I'm sure trailers will be out here soon because I think they just finished the final cut. And so I was going to have to coordinate with the film crew, which the moment you have people with you for any portion, it becomes a supported effort because they count as pacers, even though in this case they were slowing me down because they were carrying camera equipment. So that, that was reason number two. And then number three, when I was planning this thing, the mountaineering community, and this is the most important reason really, um, the mountaineering community that trusted me with giving me knowledge of how to climb these mountains. Um, they had just lost a young climber uh, named, named Jake Robinson um, to a solo climbing accident. He wasn't roped into anybody and it was kind of a freak accident and he fell through a hole and in, in in, into a crevasse and hit his head and drowned in the water at the bottom. Oh. And so there was this massive hesitation due to that of people wanting to help me because they were worried. I was just going to go out there and solo everything and end up another, another dead person. And that it would somehow be like their fault because they told me how to do it. Right. Um, so out of respect for the community, I'm like, okay, as much as is possible, I will climb with partners in any place I'm, I'm doing uh, glacier uh, travel. That's even minimally risky with crevasses. Um, and so I sought to do that. And as soon as you take on a different climbing partner, you know, if someone had started and climbed every single peak with me, then we could have maintained a self-supported team. But since no one had the time to do that, I had to choose supported and yeah, I just wasn't willing to disrespect the people who had specifically said, if I'm going to help you plan this out, um, you know, I don't want to find out that you're soloing these glaciers. Um, and so it, it was the right decision out of respect for the community that helped me build the plan that made this possible. And that, that is such a, such an interesting segue for you to make as well. Cause I was going to ask, uh, so, you know, if it's, if it's possible to, I mean, if you've covered all bases, you've covered all bases, but if it's possible to, let's dive a bit deeper into that because I, I've heard you on other podcasts talk about how on certain fastest known times i think one of them was rainbow mountain um you've had to you know consult the community make sure people are happy because some people might not be happy with you there running on their you know on their on their on what they consider their their land um so uh, taking that and applying it to the, the washington mountaineering community you said it would be something to contribute to the community there like how was it navigating 
all the different people's opinions of what to do. Because I mean, as as anyone knows from the from the running community, everyone's got an opinion. <laughs> you know, <what> was <laughs> was there any sort of hurdling you had to do or man- people management across the board, or was it just about that 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 poor man who, who passed away? Um, I mean, the big the big part was, you know, making sure I, I respected those people's wishes. And then, yeah, there were people who were doubters. There were people who even said some borderline like hater type stuff. One guy bothered to write me a message that said, uh, oh, here's here's the um, official log that we keep of people trying to climb these hundred peaks. Uh, I'd love to see your name on it. I'd love to follow you this summer. Well, actually, I just want to see you drop out when you get to Custer Peak. What a legend. <laughs> right. Just like, just like hucks a little bit of shade my way, hucks a little hate my way in there with this message that otherwise <laughs> seems really inviting and supportive. Oh, um, he's got some demons to confront. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. Um, and so like some people like that and some other people that were wanting to critique different things about this or that not being possible or that, you know, I'd, I would, you know, one person was making claims that I would be like violating permit um, permitting issues for land use in various areas. And it's like, I'd figured all that out in my planning. Um, but it's like, okay, I'll just have to be completely above reproach and very public with the fact that I get all these permits at the right time for the time I'm using the spaces that I need them for. Um, and so there was, there was a little bit of like navigating like people's opinions and people's critiques Um, and at the same time, there was this like, okay, with the things that aren't an issue of being responsible, being respectful and being honorable with, with things that are just opinion about like, oh, you should always only climb things like this, this way that I could completely go, I could crumple up into a paper ball and throw it in the trash can. If I needed to, for a certain peak, like, no, I know I can execute in this way that they can't on certain types of terrain. Um, I know, you know, I, I know my own body that, you know, I'm, I'm resilient. I've trained for years. I've run for years. I've lifted weights for years. Um, now I've climbed in the mountains for years. I have really resilient ankles. You know, it's like, I don't need to be wearing mountaineering boots. You know, some people like they roll their ankle, they tear a ligament or they break a bone. Me, I've, I can roll my ankles to the ground at a full run and, just fall into the next stride. And it's like, yeah, it hurts. It hurts pretty bad for like the next, for the next like 15 minutes of running, but then I'm okay. There's no injury, like debilitating injury with that. And so I knew I could do this entire hundred peaks in shoes and not boots. Um, so at no point did I have to worry about the logistics of which peaks do I need boots for? Which peaks do I need shoes for? It's like, nope, I've got a set of shoes that work well. I'm going to wear them. Um, so some things like that, that other people in the mountaineering community, especially the more traditional mountaineering community, look down their noses at. Like if you're climbing, if you're climbing, you know, like Mount Rainier, the tallest mountain and most glaciated peak in, uh, in Washington and uh, the most glaciated in the 48 states. Um, like you, if you're climbing that thing in shorts and in shoes, all the guides are like looking down their nose at you, you know, like, huh. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm also going to climb it car to car faster than most people get to the base camp. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, it's like, yeah, go ahead and look down your nose at me. I'll be out of your hair by the end of the day. Um, so 
yeah, there were all sorts of things like that, where it was like kind of finding those, those spaces to both execute the way I needed to execute, but also honoring and acknowledging these, these people and this community who helped me build this thing and who, who my effort would have the most meaning to, um, and to do it in such a way that they would receive it and see it done in, in a, in good style as one might say. And one of the most, one of the coolest moments, two of the coolest moments actually is the, one of the guys who I mentioned was like really being really critical. Um, cause I had made a mistake in a prior FKT of not knowing, not doing the research on land ownership well enough and cross some closed land. And so he was like, Oh, you know, this guy crossed closed land once before, like, you know, hopefully he mm-hmm. learned his lesson and he's not going to just do in it again. 99 fastest known uh, times. <laughs> yeah. Made, made one mistake and let's bring it up. Um, <laughs> so um, what was really cool is like at the end of this thing, you know, climb the hundredth peak and I see a comment from him and he's like, this is truly inspirational. You know, it's like to, to win someone over that was so critical. Oh, what a guy. Um, and then from another guy who's like a, a pretty big name in Washington mountaineering, I didn't even know he was following my effort. Like he'd not communicated with me at all in any way. And like, I'd reached out to, you know, ask his opinion on some stuff and just never got anything back. But at the end of it, I get a message from him. He's like, uh, what you did was amazing. You did it in good style. I love that you honored the, the Canada closure and still went in the hard way anyways. Um, love that you climbed Goody via the Northeast East buttress, which is a really classic rock climbing route instead of taking the easier route that's on the other side of the mountain. Um, and, um, you know, li- listed like two other things, uh, accessing dome and sinister, there was a fire closure and I had to, I, I honored the closure instead of going in and just like hiking through like some people were, cause no one was like patrolling it. I went in a much more difficult way from the backside to just bushwhack my way in. And like, he'd noticed all these things, right. He'd been paying attention at the end. He like writes me this note. He's like, I noticed these things well done. That was good style. And to have someone like that, like acknowledge and give me a a direct nod of approval um, for this big effort that I put so much heart and soul into, like, it's not what it's about, right? Like it would have been enough just to go and know myself that I, I gave it everything I had to both do it right and do it well. But to then have someone like that acknowledge like, yeah, you did this right. You did this well. Um, it was just like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause, cause something, something I hadn't even thought about until you mentioned it is, is the style in which you do it. Cause naturally you know, there's, there's no one, one route uh, to the top of a mountain in, in nearly every case. So actually, yeah, you, you're, you're completely right there. That's something I had not considered at all going into this, into this podcast is is the style and and you yeah you're you're right that is so important to making sure that you cover all bases because naturally i guess you could have just done the easiest quickest route all the time like you said gone right through the closures gone you know gone the canadian border and you could have just gone yeah done it guys but yeah to to achieve what you've done in the correct style just adds to the achievement i think yeah it was it was it was very important to me and i mean it almost made the experience all the better in the moment too like definitely makes it better looking back, but also in the moment, because there was always this looming, uh, some of the, the peaks called the Chilliwacks are the ones that are up near the Canadian border that the easiest way to get to them is to go into Canada 
and then do this crossing by trail back into the U S mm. um, but you know, Canada was closed. So that like wasn't an option. And it's like, they were going to reopen. Like if I just sat and waited for, you know, five days, six days, they were going to reopen the border. So I could have just sat and rested and been like, cool, take some easy time. But instead I went in this kind of way that everybody's like, oh man, it's heinous. It's the most insane, worst bushwhack of your life to get in called Silver Creek. And I mean, imagine like fighting for your life level bushwhacking effort, like hopping down to trees, plowing through, you know, brush and shrubbery and ferns and uh, what they call devil's club, which is this like prickle covered bush. Um, you can't hardly see where you're going. You're, you're just like navigating by like compass and GPS. Um, and you know, the worst mosquitoes of your life. And you're just doing this for, for an entire day. You're doing this for, you know, uh, what we were out there, 11 hour, 11 and a half hours to cover seven and a half miles. And that was like never sitting down, never taking breaks, just like going for it. And like, this was looming the whole time. And then just after you do this to get in there, when you go in this way, some of the hardest to climb peaks that everybody talks about that mountain, that Mount Custer that I, that I mentioned, the one guy said he was excited to watch me drop out on that's in there. The peak that everyone calls the hardest peak to climb out of the entire list, hard mocks it's back there. Um, two other hard to climb peaks, easy mocks and, and readout they're back there. Um, so you've got these six peaks that, you know, are kind of these big unknowns where there are also peaks that are kind of harder to get good beta on because so few people actually climb them. Um, cause they're hard to get to even from Canada, not as hard, but, uh, still hard to get to. Um, so you're kind of coming in with less, less information than you normally would have. You're coming in through a much more difficult means, which means you're very committed. The exit is very difficult to do. You're carrying in all your supplies because there's no chance for resupply. It's like, if you miss one, you've got to hike all the way out and then hike all the way back in. No way around it. Um, and then like knowing we were going to exit an alternate way that was you know, basically another eight miles of bushwhacking. It ended up being much easier bushwhacking. Um, I would almost just call it forest walking, even though you're still hopping down to trees and all that, but you can kind of at least see where you're going. Um, but then after you do those eight miles, you've got basically a half marathon of trail uh, to get all the way out with another like 4,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, so there's just this, you know, wild entry, wild exit, um, and these six difficult peaks. Um, well, one of them is pretty easy called uh, Mount Rom in there. Um, but you know, it's like this, this thing, this project, this expedition of the, the, the overall project, that's just like looming this like giant final test that, that it's like no mistakes were allowed. If you mess up, then it's like a huge hit to the, the overall, uh, record, the overall pursuit. Um, and it just got to sit there like looming in the background as I was like, pinning down all these other peaks and knocking them out one after the other and all these different, you know, outings where it was like multiple days away from the car, um, and doing these different pushes in the backcountry. And it's like, that one was always looming as like the big final test. And then to go out and, and execute it so cleanly 
and have, have some people who were following at that point, just be astonished by what my climbing and partner, I, I did, you know, climbing all six peaks in two days, once we were in there, um, just like people being like, wow, that that's incredible. Um, (laughs) it was, it was just, it, it felt really good. And then to know, like coming out of there, all that was left were basically the volcanoes and volcanoes are what I cut my teeth on as a mountaineer. They were the first things I started climbing. And so it almost felt like this victory lap, this coming home, if you will, um, to just, you know, take this tour back down, um, the whole state of Washington from North to South, just climbing all of these tall volcanoes. Um, yeah, just, it just made, it made the experience right. Like to, to have to, it still would have been cool to be able to go in through Canada and do it kind of the easier way. And could have had somebody hike a base camp in that way and just knocked the peaks out with like a, uh, a base camp of supplies, but to have to like carry everything in and carry everything out. Um, and like, have that, like, Oh, this, we have to execute that pressure, that urgency that like, this is the final test kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It made the experience all the, all the richer. That's epic. Uh, I've got, I've got a couple of questions just, just from that. I mean, the first one I'm, I'm thinking about is, is mindset when, so, so both when you're at those sort of critical points and you feel you've got that pressure and, you know, like you said, like, like the, the effort will be seriously knocked back if I don't get these six peaks banged out, <laughs> no problem. And equally when, when you're falling into that, um, you know, that, that, like you said, that, that coming home lap, you know, victory lap almost, <laughs> um, you know, how do you keep your mindset in check in those moments to make sure you don't falter both, both in difficulty and both in thinking it's going to be really easy? I think, I think what it comes down to is, I don't know, it's even, it's almost another layer of, of what we talked about earlier. Like, you know, that you have a limited number of moments to be alive. And there's this, this way I believe in of living as fully as possible in those moments. And it's like, even within each, I, during the project, I spent little, very little time once it was planned. Like once the project actually started, once I took that first step away from the first trailhead, I spent very little time thinking about the whole project, almost no time. It was always orienting my mind on the next challenge the next immediate thing I was looking forward to, um, the, the, the next objective, the next opportunity, whatever, whatever it was, right. Very often it was a challenge, right? Like, Oh, I can't wait for this Ridge traverse. I can't wait for this rock climb. I can't wait for this glacier travel. Um, Oh, this bushwhack is going to be heinous. Um, like these different, just integral pieces and just being fully absorbed in them. Um, and so I think to me, that's, that's the secret to keeping the proper level of motivation is being very oriented and in love, almost like a kid on the playground, right? Like they're just absorbed playing in the thing they're playing in. They're not, they're not thinking about the next recess. They're not thinking about what, what work they're going to do when they get back to the classroom, they're just in that moment. And I think that's the secret to having your mind properly tuned and as highly motivated as is possible 
in that moment is to just be in that moment. Cause the moment you start like bringing in the future, you're distracted from the present. You can't possibly have as much motivation and passion for what you're experiencing because by the nature of, you know, even as I say it, it almost sounds silly, obvious, right? Like, well, you're thinking about something else. You're worrying about something else. You're focusing on something else. So you can't be in that moment. Your brain isn't properly tuned into the moves you're making. Um, and so I think that's my secret is, is I am just genuinely looking forward to the ups and the downs, the lights and the darks, the, the, um, the yin and the yang of whatever experience is right, is right in front of me. And almost that childlike spirit of just being stoked for about what's about to happen. Like, let's go play. That, you know, that reminds me a, a lot of the um, uh, Will Smith quote where he says, um, you know, to, to build a wall, you don't think about building a wall. You just, you just lay a brick as perfectly as you can possibly lay that brick. And then you do it again and then you do it again. And then before you know it, you've got this wall. And then that, that, re- that reminds me of that, just thinking about what's, what you're precisely in. And, and actually, yeah, again, you've made a brilliant segue into my next question. Well, and, and I think you've answered it really, which was, did you ever, you know, balancing planning 100 peaks and, you know, being in the moment on the peak, you know, did you ever find yourself, you know, either balance, trying to like struggling to balance that or having to pinch yourself to remind you, hey, stop, like you're right here, check out this landscape rather than powering on ahead to try and chase the time? Um, no, I, you know, I think, I do think I've kind of, kind of answered this one because, you know, if it's like, okay, these are some, some mundane trail miles, it's like, yeah, let's, let's turn up the throttle. Let's just, you know, go in the mental zone of covering ground fast. Cause that's, what's useful in that moment. Um, but if it's like, I'm out on beautiful terrain or I'm about to pull onto some rock climbing moves or some glacier travel, just like tuning in and being present in the moment. Cause it's like, I learned long ago, I was lucky enough. I biked across, I biked across the USA when I graduated university and I can distinctly remember when the Atlantic ocean came into view. Cause I biked from the Pacific to the Atlantic. And I'd remembered just like falling in love with the simplicity of, you know, basically punching my clock in was when my feet clipped into the pedals in the morning and punching my clock out was clipping them out at the end of the day. Like I'd biked however far I wanted. All I had to do was point the bike East and pedal. Um, and I remember seeing the Atlantic ocean come into view. And I remember this, this sense of elation, like I've done it. Like I've pedaled every pedal stroke across this country I grew up in. And then in the very next moment, just this like huge dip of, but that means it's over. Like, I don't just wake up and pedal East anymore. And I, I, I took that lesson to heart that even, even in these moments when I'm racing the clock, where it seems like the very essence of the project is to reach the end, it's never about the end. It's about creating a lifestyle in the moment that you can be completely in love with. And I know myself enough to know that there's no moment I'm more in love with the moments of being alive than when I'm pushing my skills up to their max against terrain that challenges them in beautiful spaces. And so I was very aware as I was doing all these things and climbing all these peaks, like when I was in those moments, 
that it was, aha, this is it. This is why I'm bothering to do this project at all. Like it never was about reaching the end. It was like these moves, this feeling, this sensation, this glorious moment, this questioning and suffering, this sleep deprivation, um, this beautiful view, um, hanging here, you know, on toes and fingertips with the breeze hitting me. Like those were the moments I always was out there to get. And to have the awareness in the process to, to soak those in, um, albeit sometimes very quickly, right? Like just a, just even a short pause to acknowledge the moment and then back to making the next move. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was always a, a, a part of it. And, you know, I'd, I'd luckily had many, many of these experiences and many of these adventures, um, in similar ways to educate myself enough to, to remain aware. Yeah. So, so you were, you were right there. You were present every, every moment. I mean, I can't say every moment. Yeah, we're well, all human, as many, but... as, as many as humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're going to have that guy like coming out going, he did a hundred peaks, but don't forget on this particular mountain, he was thinking about the future. <laughs> you can't trust him to do it again. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as, as we as we start to come towards an end here, you know, I'm I'm thinking about what a hundred fastest known times. You know, there are so many people who have hobbies who, um, who, who you know, so much of it you can apply to real life. You know, even the gym. You know, you, you can think about squatting, and and it you know it's training life. You know, having that heavy weight on your back, sitting down with it, and then forcing yourself to stand back up again it then makes your job easier makes relationships easier because you, you know, you're, you, you're training yourself essentially. So if you think about not 10, not 20, but 100 fastest known times, when you're thinking about lessons learned both in the sport and, and in life, which ones, which one of those fastest known times come to mind? Mm. I mean, the, the essence of, a project that big, like relates, it relates back to that core philosophy of like living the best moments. Right. And, and then also there's this awareness inside me that I, I want to be a person who has bothered to do enough myself that has bothered to shoulder enough myself, like you illustrated with the reference to squatting that I've bothered to shoulder enough of a burden myself that it's of some use, some inspiration to others. And there's this awareness that if I do these things and I take on these big projects, then perhaps it will have some meaning to others that are trying to take on big projects themselves. And perhaps I'll, I'll meet some people that help better me. And then I'll be able to introduce people to others that can help better them. Um, so the sense that that these pursuits would not just be, even though they, it would be perfectly fine if it was just in and of themselves, because I would have lived these happy, beautiful, amazing memories that brought great pleasure to me and made me proud of myself. But on top of that, it would give me permission to speak into others' lives and to have camaraderie and respect enough shared with people to help facilitate growth and development in their lives. And that's important to me. Like, as I look forward to future iterations of myself, 
I would be disappointed if I didn't do something that set me up to be able to help some people because of the life story that I've lived. And I think that's part of, you know, when people ask the question, well, why 100, you know, why not just one or two? It's like, well, I wanted to do something big. I wanted to do something unique. I wanted to chart my own way in how I did these athletic pursuits in the outdoors because I want to be able to do that for others. The same freedom and power I've found there, the creativity I've found there, I want to be able to pass that on to others and enable others to, to do their own great works. So I think, I, I, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that's like roped in there with this like understanding that it's like, you know, the, the life well lived, what is the life well lived? And someone could look at what I'm doing and be like, oh, what you're doing is incredibly selfish. Like you're, you're only caring about yourself and these records and making yourself look good. And it's like, you know, on the, on the one hand in a short, in a short range, a short sighted sense, it's like, yeah, you could make that argument that, that I'm, I'm very focused on things that serve myself, like chasing these records, being in shape enough to chase these records. But at the same time, if I bother, I know enough about humans and how we work, you know, I'm a teacher uh, that's a process of lifting up little humans and helping them become the best version of themselves through trials and tribulations sometimes, but still trying your best. Um, I know enough about humanity that it's like, it's like the old, it's like the old quote, you know, uh, what is it? An ancient Chinese wisdom, no stream rises higher than its source. And so if I want to be of very much use to anyone, I have to create the best version of myself but the only way I'm going to create the best version of myself is if I'm pursuing something that I have an immense amount of motivation for, but doing it with an awareness of how it can then be turned to serve others. Uh, and I think there's so many ways that, that one can go wrong. You know, you you can read about athletes in the mountains or in, in, in running even that like do these great undertakings and then feel hollow and empty when they finish. Um, and that's, you know, well-known, well-known thing. You do this amazing thing that gives you this huge dopamine hit. And then you, you end up lower than your baseline dopamine for a certain amount of time afterwards. It's like, that's true. But also I think there's this element of whenever we do something, there are these instincts inside of us that we're supposed to turn around and do something for others with it to, to, to help others with what we've learned. And like, I've been around the block enough as a teacher to know and have integrated that into my process and my understanding of why I do what I do. Um, so, yeah, I think to me, that's a huge part. That's a huge part of, of the story, the sort of the long, the long form story that I'm living. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it begs the question as well, you know, you talk about being an elementary school teacher, they're only you know, five to 12 years old, but do you find yourself applying you know, your stories and your lessons to that teaching to them, uh, or do they have no idea what you get up to on a weekend? Um, some of them, some of them know more than others, you know, um, some of them are very tuned in and like, you know, cause right. No teacher is going to reach everybody, right. We, different people need different things. And so there's some that are very tuned in and very aware. And there's some that are like, they, they hear the stories they, they hear, or if they don't hear the stories, they hear the lessons from the stories 
in, you know, it's obviously at this point embedded within how I teach and what I say to them about what they're doing, um, how I embed a sense of self-belief and how I embed a sense of uh, pursuit of challenge and embracing difficulty into how I teach them in the moments that they're facing those things. Um, so even if they're not, even if they're not aware of what I've done or who I am, like, I don't care. Like there's, they're still getting a version of that up that applies to what they're interested in. And hopefully they carry that sense of self and that belief into their adult life. And when they have the, when they have the reins of their own adult life in their hands, instead of their parents, you know, having those reins, they're able to do something with it. Well, I mean, I've got two last questions left. Uh, one's difficult. It's the first one. I, I encourage you to interpret it however you want. Second one's super easy. Um, the f- now, I usually ask this question across someone's entire career, but we were talking before we hit record on this, how, how many stories you've got from, um, from this project and how you know, people climb one peak in one day. And, and they have so many stories to share with their friends and you just did a hundred peaks in 50 days, you know? So if you could relive one moment in those 50 days, 23 hours, 43 minutes, what would it be? That is a great question. You might have to e- edit some, some dead space out of this. I'm just, I'm filtering through so many things through my mind right now if I was to relive just one of them, you know, if I was to relive one of the moments, I'm going to, I'm going to choose one that was testing instead of one that was glorious. I was very proud of myself because I hate bugs. I like, I would rather I'm, I'm able to keep a calmer presence of mind when I'm hanging with just the edges of my toes and my fingers on holds with exposure and no rope, um, like I'm able to keep my composure and be in a state of flow and be happy in those situations so much more easily. Like you, you put me with mosquitoes or especially like any kind of stinging bug, like a wasp or a hornet or a yellow jacket. And I lose, I lose my centeredness right away. I'm I, like, it's very easy for me to slide into like, I'm not enjoying this anymore, or I'm in a state of like some amount of panic. They, de- they derail my ability to just be in the moment and, and see the whole experience um, way worse than, than other things. And when I did the bushwhack in Silver Creek, no doubt the worst mosquitoes I've ever experienced in my life while doing the most heinous, difficult testing bushwhack with six days of food on my back. Um, and the amount of calm presence and just embracing, you know, as these mosquitoes were just like flying up my nose and bouncing off my face and just everywhere, like clouds of them just, being able to stay present and be like, yeah, this is a real part of the experience. This is as bad of an experience with mosquitoes as I've ever had. You know, I hope to never top in regards to mosquitoes. I hope to never top this experience, but also just to stay calm and present um, 
and okay with being present in that moment. Like I can look back at that test um, and like, there's just no way to get away from them. Like normally if it's like a trail or something, it's like, I just take off running and could cover ground fast enough that it, at least they wouldn't be as bad. But the bushwhacking was just so slow that there was no escape and to just abide those moments. There's something about that that I'm proud of. So I guess, I guess if I, if I had to choose something to, to relive again, I would choose the testing thing. Um, just because of the nature of being proud of myself in that moment. I like that. That's a good answer. <laughs> so as a reward for, uh, for having to scour your brain of 50 days of <laughs> memories there, the easy question as promised is, if we wanted to follow along with your adventures, keep up to date with what you're doing, where can we do that? Um, I would say the quickest and easiest way is either through my website, jasonhardrath.com or via Instagram, uh, at Jason Hardrath. Um, those are the two easiest, quickest ways to sort of see what I'm up to and what I'm up to next. I'll be releasing a, a trailer and a documentary soon, Journey to 100. Um, I'll make sure that you get a link and that that will be on my website as well when it becomes uh, publicly available. And yeah, so those would probably be the best ways. And yeah, I'm hoping to get out on some big adventures going forward too. Perfect. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. That was, that was an epic session. So thank you so much. Chris, it was a pleasure. Mm-hmm.